Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. When I first started running wilderness programs and summer camps on my own, not under the guise of another camp or another program, I mostly tried to do everything myself. I did a lot of the cooking. I tried to do almost 99% of the teaching. I was doing the supervision. I was doing first aid. I was kind of covering everything as much as possible by myself, mainly because, you know, I'm a little bit of a control freak. I, you know, have that pattern in my family or whatever, where, you know, if you've had any kind of trauma, you, you try desperately to control the things that you can control uh, in the world around you to kind of feel safe or whatever. And not only did I do that, but I also tried to hire people when I did need to bring people on who I could, you know, work with that oftentimes were friends of mine or apprentices or, you know, students and so forth. And I learned a lot in the early years. This is 1989, uh, 90, 91, 92. Like during those years uh, and during that time, this was pre-internet. So I couldn't go to a computer or my phone and type in seven best staff training topics or concerns or focal points or whatever. Like you, you didn't have the internet to kind of give you this knowledge base and these best practices and so forth that could be kind of gleaned from all of our collective experience, you know, crowdsourcing and all that sort of thing. So really a lot of it happened in the program, during the program, before the program and afterwards of me thinking like, okay, here's what I'm going to try to do. What do I think would be a good idea? And then putting that plan into action and then afterwards evaluating it and saying, well, how did that go? I tried to hire these people. Did I ask the right questions? Did I do the training in the right way? And then at the end of the program, you know, or during the program, okay, what problems are happening? How do I solve those? And then afterwards, evaluating what did I do that was awesome? And what did I do that really could use improvement? What were my blind spots? What was I missing? And I tried to do this every single year for all the time that I've been running programs. It's almost like I never stop thinking about it. Probably an ADHD thing where I just am constantly thinking, how could I do that better? What would make it easier? What would make it better experience for me as a staff person or some of my helpers or for the participants? I've learned a bunch of things on the way. And I I know this time of year typically is when everyone is either just done staff training or you might be in the middle of it. And I thought, I'm going to just make this one of our episodes to give you as much insight as I can deliver. So, here we go. We're going to buckle up and see if we can enjoy this ride a little bit because the most important thing for me is to help you get the benefit of some of my experience so that I can pass on what I've learned to the new generation of forest educators that are coming up through the ranks and just to help them maybe not make some of the mistakes or just to just have one less thing that you have to worry about. Because there's always, as we know, two or three new things that you didn't anticipate that always kind of pop up as you go as well. So if I can take a few of those off your plate, I 100% want to do that. So we're going to dive right into looking at hiring 
So when you're hiring and you're looking at candidates, you know, the best thing that I can say is make sure that you have a really good job description and, you know, a list of qualities and skills that you need your staff to have. And then think about each of those roles. So, for example, for Hawk Circle Camp, we had someone who was a program director, a camp director. Like I was the camp director on an executive level. And oftentimes I would teach most of the camps. But it helps to have someone who you know is hired as either the assistant director, you can call it that, or you can say they're the program director. But the idea is that they are in charge when I'm not there. And that means you need someone that is responsible enough to be able to talk to parents on the phone. You need someone who can actually tell other uh, staff members, you know, direct them, support them, correct them, whatever, make big decisions when I'm not there. And just to be clear, like I've run Hawk Circle for 35 years. It was a residential, you know, overnight camp teaching wilderness skills almost exclusively that I like to call a human development program hidden in a youth program. So you you have your, your assistant director that is kind of in charge when I'm not there. Below that, you have like what I call a wilderness instructor. I don't want to really say it's hierarchical, like below, but in terms of just in terms of like who can be in charge or is has the most experience, this is how it kind of gets ranked. So there's usually wilderness instructors, people that are going to be able to teach certain skills and lead things as well and can do that independently. They don't need anyone else to be there to kind of support them and and see what's going on. And they have experience so they can be kind of trusted to make things happen. If you say, take some of these kids out and do some fire making skills and learn and and so forth, they can go do that. And they're not necessarily going to come back and go, oh yeah, we didn't know anything about fire making. So we just gathered leaves or something. And you're just like, oh no, we lost that two hour block and didn't get to kind of build that skill that we're working towards in our program recipe, so to speak. So the instructors are in that role. And then under that a little bit or ranked slightly below that are your counselors. And counselors are people who can basically supervise campers in a positive way. They have the ability to like take them down to the play field and play a variety of games. They can make programmatic changes in their activities to allow for the campers to feel safe or to just switch things up a little bit. They have some experience supervising young people and they can do things like putting kids to bed or sit around the campfire with them and play music on the guitar and, you know, do s'mores or take them on a nature hike and go up into the woods and gather something and come back. Like they're not necessarily going to teach you how to make an arrow and, you know, know how to do all the knots and sinew and feathers and all. They don't know how to do that, but they could at least take the students out and go, hey, I'll hike you guys all out and get arrow shafts down in the willow clumps or whatever. So you have those folks, which are awesome. And then under that, again, ranked slightly lower, are the people who are helpers, who are really good at helping things with supervision of other staff members. So these are your CITs, your kind of like counselors in training. These might be somebody that's coming in as a a volunteer or an intern, or they could be someone who is, you know, just hired in that supporting role. They might not have ever been a counselor before or a camper before, but maybe they just want to help out for a few weeks. And those people, you really can't leave them with the group alone. 
to do, you know, kind of handle things in terms of a supervisory load. They can definitely be a really good assistance. And these oftentimes are people that will work in the kitchen uh, part-time and then they'll come in and be part of your activities. And so they add to the supervisory team and they can go, you know, they can carry the first aid kit, they can go get materials and supplies. In addition to these staff positions, we also would have a medical director, someone who is a, they would be considered the camp nurse or the camp EMT. And they would be someone who in a medical situation, they outrank everyone, including myself. Like I'm not an EMT. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor, which I of course would always back them up, but that it's just always got to be really clear to everyone that in an emergency, those people are in charge. And then usually there's someone in the camp that also, you know, most of the instructors have wilderness first aid, CPR, and other training, first aid training or water safety or whatever. They have other trainings that can support the program throughout the entire experience. And then usually the other staff that we have in our program that we would hire for would be a kitchen manager and a kitchen assistant. These are folks who are good at putting some food together and, you know, keeping the kitchen clean and, you know, passing all of our health inspections and who are going to do a really, really good job keeping us fed and everything. And those people have to be able to, you have to really rely on them. Like if the food thing is a little loosey-goosey, man, it is not fun for anyone. It makes the kids stressed. It makes the staff stressed out. In a, in a residential program where you're like, okay, I've got an entire summer to be, I'm relying on the camp to provide food for me or whatever. You really want that kitchen to be a top notch. So that's a good place to make sure that if you're spending money in your staff, make sure that that kitchen team is well compensated and well-trained and are going to do the job you need them to do. So those are our kind of main positions that we had at our program. Your program may be very different, obviously. You might have a day camp, which means you don't need a food. You don't need a, maybe you don't need a camp nurse. Maybe you don't need to have all those layers of people. Maybe you're a forest school and you just need people who are teachers, you know, certified teachers and for, you know, certified forest educators who are essentially really good at creating an environment where they're establishing creative play, exploration, wandering, all those good things. You'll know whatever it is that your program needs. Just make sure that you really think those positions very carefully so that you can be clear when you're interviewing for those positions that they are qualified to do that job and that you feel confident about it. A lot of it will come down to the interview process. Uh, there's a lot of people right now when, you know, especially the last like seven or eight years who are really good at applying for programs. They have a great resume. Their cover letter is fantastic. I don't, I mean, now probably they're using like AI chat GPT or something to like create a awesome cover letter, which is, which is fine. But the idea here is that you don't always necessarily know who you're getting prior to the internet. Like I never knew when people showed up, I, I had no idea what they look like, what they were how tall, how strong, how whatever, you just would get who you got. But the interview part is the really key element is to know what kinds of questions you want to ask them. And the key thing that I would say, and I was not good at doing this, I'm going to be 100% honest, I was not good at asking a question and then really listening to the answer. Like I listened to the answer, but I just, I always feel like I talk like 95% of the time and they talk 5%, and then I get off the phone with an interview, and then my wife will say, 
hey, so how did that go? Where are they from? And I'd be like, um, I don't know. I think. I think they're from Ohio, you know. She would say, well, tell me more about them. Or, you know, and I would just be like, oh, shoot, I, I didn't ask enough questions and I didn't give them enough time to answer. Um, I got better as I went, but, you know, when I look back on it, that's like one of my big flaws. So thinking about that and saying, like, what questions do you want to ask? Giving them time to answer and really listening, not just to their answer, but to the answer behind the answer. And then asking follow-up questions because you really want to make sure that you're getting the right person. Like, honestly, it's better to have nobody than to hire the wrong person for the job and then to have to figure out how to get out of that relationship through firing or letting them go or, or deciding not to hire or whatever. You really want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. So take your time in that process. And don't be afraid to do a second interview if you need to. Of course, it's really important to do background checks. That's a really vital part of this process. All right. So the, the other thing that I'm going to add, and this has to do with who you hire in your program. When you're hiring a group of you know instructors or even just a couple of people, there's a tendency, of course, to say, hey, I'm going to hire these three people because these are my friends. We took all these classes together. Like I'm going to hire them to be in my, you know, whatever it is. And it's very tempting to do that. And, and, you know, honestly, it's a great idea to do it because you know them, but it's very important to remember a couple things. Number one, the, the most important thing to remember is, do you feel like they know more than you do? If you hire someone that you think is a little bit more knowledgeable than you, and you're the person hiring them, and you're the person that's the director, you're in charge. But if you have a feeling, uh, they might know more than me, I, I would defer to them where maybe they're going to feel a little bit like they're in charge because you're, you're going to give up that leadership position. Then I would say, you may need to really think that through very carefully. This hasn't happened to me too much, although it did in the very beginning, there was a couple of instances where somebody came on who had, you know, more teaching experience than I, and I realized that they sort of were able to carry the staff to where the staff kind of didn't necessarily want to follow what I was suggesting and instead really all siding with this other person. And it, it was just awkward. If you're new and you haven't had that experience yet, it's okay to just carefully think it through. It's okay to do a little activity or something with them and find out how well do you actually work together. Because it's really different, you know, having somebody come over and hanging out by the campfire or going on a hike with someone where you're just two people doing your thing. And it's a whole other thing when you're actually being hired and or supervising them. You have to be able to know that they will defer to you. If you say, no, do the campfire, you want someone who's actually going to go, all right, well, that's fine. Hey, I'm glad that you at least listened to my suggestion and they'll go do it and, and just go with the flow as opposed to someone who will argue with you a little bit. Now, it's also good to have someone who will, like, it's kind of like Star Trek where you have the, you know, you have the captain and then you have the number one in the hierarchy of the enterprise or whatever Someone who actually will challenge you and challenge some of your assumptions and maybe give you a couple of devil's advocate slash what are some alternatives. You want someone to do that because you don't want to be kind of seen as you are the one that has all the answers all the time and to help question decisions that might be mistakes. So that's good. You want someone like that. But 
you don't want a mutiny. That's the point. The, the, the number one person in like Star Trek is someone who very clearly is not, they're not saying, hey, if you don't listen to my opinion, then we're going to mutiny. They're just saying, hey, you know, privately, not in front of everybody, privately, let me just question, is this the best decision for what we're doing right now? You can see how hiring staff is complicated and it's not, it's nuanced. It's not just a clear thing of hang my shingle, get my people, and then, you know, watch the program be successful and the money roll in and whatever else, and the, the fame and the accolades or whatever. It's just not like that. It's, there's a lot of moving parts to all of this. So that's why we're doing the spotlight. It was easier for me in most cases to hire people who had a little bit of wilderness experience or a little bit of nature stuff, those people were always a hundred times easier to work with in most cases uh, because they would basically just go, all right, hey, I'm here at Hawk Circle. How do you guys do this, do these things? I want to learn your way. I'm learning already a ton of stuff. And they just went with the flow and they were just like, hey, right, right on, I'm doing it. However, people who have been studying wilderness for many years, or, you know, they come from a school that is very, I don't want to say dogmatic is a little bit too strong of a word, but if they, there are some programs and schools where they just have instructors very uh, opinionated and, or feel like they have, they, they take up a lot of leadership ground or, or, um, you know, philosophy or whatever you, whatever you want to call it where they will claim a lot of ground of this is how things are, so to speak. In those programs, it can feel really appropriate. They may have a, a philosophy that's different than your program. And sometimes when people have taken like five or six or seven courses from a particular program, they will begin to role model whatever that main theme is. Not everybody, just this is a not a blanket statement. And it's not an indictment on anything. And it's, I definitely don't think that you should not hire other people, but think it through a little bit and be careful to really assess where they're at and whether they're in a position to come in and actually help you or are they coming in and helping you as long as you do it their way, if that makes sense. I mean, I'll tell you as an example, I'll just say sometimes I've hired people. My lineage is through like the Tom Brown. Uh, Tom Brown's Wilderness Tracker School uh, group. And, and they're like a wonderful group of people. But Tom is incredibly passionate. He has a very clear vision of what he feels is the way that things should be done and what, you know, what we need to do as human beings. And like he has a whole different, a whole philosophy that he's incredibly passionate about. And then many of the people in those programs come out and they will echo that a lot at times. And not everybody, but a lot of them will. And so, you know, like I remember, I remember coming back to a camp one night and I was like, or the next morning, and I had had something I had to do with my family. So I missed the campfire and the storytelling and that around the fire. I came in the next morning and I could just see that the mood in the camp was weird. And I didn't know what it was. And this is probably like in 19... 94 or something. So a long time ago. And I was, you know, looking at what was going on. And I talked to one of my instructors, uh, Mike, Mike Puther, some of you might know. And I said to him like, Hey, what, you know, what's going on? Like, uh, it feels weird today. What's going on? Did anything happen? Like, how did it go last night? And I, I remember Mike saying something like, Oh yeah, so-and-so, whoever it was. And I don't remember the person, but he started sharing and reading from one of Tom's books about like the prophecy about the end times and the sky turning red, like this whole like end of the, 
end of the world philosophy and saying, you know, we have to learn all these wilderness skills or else we're not going to make it and all that. And this is, of course, many through 30 years ago. And he, you know, he, he, he was reading something that was very important to him and why he was doing the skills and why he wanted to teach and everything, which is great. But he didn't realize that, of course, you know, it's a totally different to get that message when you're 25 or 45. And it's really different when you get it when you're, you know, 13 or 12. So they were just feeling the weight of that. And they didn't really know quite how to process that. And I had never said, hey, read read some of that to the children. Uh, but, you know, it just happened. He, they heard story, he heard storytelling, started sharing that. And, you know, I ended up resolving it. We worked it out really well with, this, with the students and I kind of explained the situation. And I think when, he, when this person realized, you know, that it was, had really affected the mood and when I kind of pointed that out, he was like, oh, wow, yeah, man, I'm really sorry about that. So it was not an intentional thing. And it was not, it was just echoing what, you know, what our experiences are when we go to the tracker school or some other place like that, uh, where you can kind of get these like intense messages. So that is a possibility. And part of one of the things that also is key to remember is that every, you know, wherever you learn in nature, when you go out and you have an experience in nature, or you're doing like bushcraft, or you're on an expedition, you're, you're hiking to the top of a mountain or summit, you know, you're, you're on a river rafting trip down through the Grand Canyon. You're, you're out with a bunch of Boy Scouts, you know, and you're like in a tent circle with all these fires. And you have this moment where, you're, where your heart kind of opens for the first time. And when you do that, you know, you're just, whether you're 14 or 17 or 25 or 35 or 50 or whatever, when you're out there and all of a sudden everything just feels right. And you, you can suddenly like really hear the birds that are singing. You can suddenly see the stars and it's like they just suddenly, the, the blue of the night sky just like hits you like a hammer and you just can smell the like wild strawberries wait, wafting down the hill from the meadow up above the trees, you know, and you, you just have this, this experience of your heart opening to nature and to the earth and how much, uh, you know, she provides for all of us all the time. And then you have this good feeling with where you can feel like you can be yourself maybe for the first time with a whole bunch of people who are also feeling that way. It's a, it can be a, a peak moment. It, it is a peak moment. And for someone who's like 14 or 17 or whatever, like that is the peak moment of their entire life. And it can, it is so powerful. It's palpable. It, it affects them for years. and. You know, I, for me, having run programs for as long, I, I kind of, I, I can, wa- I watch for it in my program because I can see when it starts to happen. But when it happens, it's just, it's hard for me sometimes to look at it and go, oh yeah, wow, it's happening right now. But when it does happen, people who have had that happen get very loyal to the program or the people, the instructors to where their heart first opened, where they feel safe, where they have an experience where they have communication and they everything starts feeling right, those people will stay loyal to that program. And, and when they switch to a different program, it's not the same. The heart isn't open. And it, it's very difficult, you know, for people to kind of jump around with that when, you know, because they're kind of looking to recreate it from a similar, you know, they obviously they think, oh, the recipe of all the things that that person did is how my heart opened. So, it's kind of like why we listen to certain songs over and over again, because we're just like, oh, I really love this one part, or we watch a movie or whatever. Thinking about that, and <laughs> the reason I'm going into this whole tangent is to say that because of that, 
people who have had their heart open to a program become loyal to that program and that program's approach. And they may not be able to shift to your approach easily. They might be able to do it, but it's going to take work because you're going to have to really be clear and you're going to have to be very strong in whatever your approach is. And are you going to be able to communicate and demand that they do it that way? Because that is your approach, which is your decision, your philosophy, your vision. Keep those things in mind. You know, again, you know, just a word of advice around that. Think about it and internalize it and, and add that to your, your radar, if you want, if you will, while you're interviewing people. This, it will save you a lot of trouble. Uh, one of the things that I would say is a, a, a mistake that new program directors and sometimes older program directors do is they go, Hey, you know what? I know this person. I'm hiring them. Oh, I, here's all these really good people. They're all awesome people. They all have a lot of skills. I'm going to get them all together. And then we're just going to have this like awesome summer. And I want to say it's kind of like a party, you know, like if you invite a bunch of friends over, probably you're all going to have a good time. You're like, have some good food. There's good music. There's great people, good conversation. It's a, you know, it's warm in the house and there's a wood stove going or, or maybe you're all outside. There's a good chance that that program, that, that event that you're going to have, whatever that is, is going to be awesome. And so you can kind of just invite everybody. You know that they're going to bring good food, you know, potluck. It's going to just work out. You can't do that in a nature program. You can't kind of hire and then forget it and just go, oh, they're all great. I don't have to really put a lot of energy into my staff training. You really have to share with them what is the recipe that your program follows to achieve consistent results. Now, that group may be awesome for that first program and they may pull it all together and it might just all work out great. And believe me, I hope it does. We all do. But the mistake I've made in the past is I've been like, oh, we have these returning staff. I got these new people. It's going to be awesome. And then I would just, we would just kind of run with that. And usually there were good reasons why I had to run with it. And, you know, I just, I was not quite as on top of everything because I thought I don't have to put all that energy. I can actually do all the stuff that the health department's telling me to do or make a zillion phone calls to the parents or whatever. And... (laughs) And every time I've done that, you know, we have gotten good results, but they weren't consistent results. And they oftentimes meant that later on in the summer, I would have to kind of try to corral the cats. You know, I'd have to try to get everybody on the same page again. And it's way, way, way harder to do that mid-program or mid-season than it is to do it in the beginning prior to when there's anybody even else there. It's a lot like in a program when you have children that come in, it's much easier to be tight and have really good firm boundaries on the first one, two, two, two and a half days. And to make sure that everyone is like on board, they're on the bus, they know where the boundaries are, they know what the expectations are, the norms and everything. And then you can kind of loosen up because now you go, okay, they're all following this, they're on the bus, we can relax a little bit, we don't have to be like, we're still watching everything, but we don't have to be as intense because they're they're on track, you know what I mean? But... <laughs> For staff, it's the same thing. You have to be tight with the staff in the beginning 
and then loosen up as you go, as you see that they are on track. If you don't do that, I can tell you right now, you're creating a lot more work that is not fun to try to do. So that's a really key element that you want to put together and put in place. Let's let's dive into this next piece here. If you're going to start tight with those, you know, with your team, it's really important that they know what is what are the roles. If they don't know what the roles are and what they're expected to do, then they are going to struggle. And no one wants to have a director of a program come in and like help them get it and then kind of spend a lot of time with them and everything. No one wants to be in that position. They really just want to be able to know what they need to do and do it well. So it helps in the in the beginning to go through like, this is what doing the dishes in the wilderness means. This is what going to the, walking to the creek is. Walk them down to the creek, show them the boundaries of, <laughs> show them where the leeches are or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you have to show them, make sure they get that actually uh, a full experience so that they don't get surprised and have a problem. So you want to make sure they know this is how you want a campfire run. This is how you want bedtime to run. It's it's always in those little areas. You know, oftentimes you think, oh, it's the campfire is the most important thing. But really, honestly, bedtime, man, bedtime is a place where it can get real loosey-goosey. And that's where usually a camper will come running up and go, oh, so-and-so squirted me with a water bottle behind the, you know, behind the woodshed and they scared me and whatever. And then you have a problem that then all of a sudden it's like everyone gets to bed at like 12 o'clock because they're sitting and having a council talking about why they can't do that or whatever. All problems lead back to you. If you're listening to this and you're a forest educator and you're the director, uh, just so you remember, everything will lead back to you. Did you show them how you wanted it to be done? <laughs> did you make that clear to the campers? Are they do they have clear expectations of what bedtime is or isn't? Do is everybody on board? And if when there's something that goes wrong, it's almost always something that we either meant to do, forgot to do, didn't even know we had to do, and all of a sudden there's a problem. So please don't take that in a in the wrong way. It's it's okay if that happens, but just so you know, it's that's why I'm telling you this is because I have this happen not once, not twice, but like five, six, seven times I've realized, yeah, I can't just tell staff, hey, go do bedtime with the kids. Some staff will go, all right, everyone go to bed. And then they walk and go up to their tent and lay down and go to sleep. That is not bedtime. That is not how we do it. And that is a recipe for disaster because somebody somewhere will hear some kids running around yelling and they will walk up and go, what, who's on for bedtime? And they're like, oh yeah, Toby was on and he went to sleep. And you're like, dang it. There's, there is no Toby. But anyway, the point is there, there's a lot of other campers though, that are staff that were like Toby. And, you know, because they missed staff training or I didn't cover it in staff training, it just wasn't in their plan or whatever. So, you know, it helps to have a clipboard with a, with a bunch or a, a staff handbook that is well worth your time to create and craft that. Have a clipboard with a list of stuff to go, all right, bedtime, tell everybody this. This is what happens. Make the rounds to the cabins or the tents. Take them through that process and have something that will let them know this is how you do it and the reason why you don't need to be at breakfast and why you can maybe be, you know, on at 10 o'clock instead of 8 o'clock the next day is because you're probably going to be up till 11.30 or 12, just making sure that everybody is down for the night and not sneaking around or doing whatever. So have a clipboard, have those lists, think it through, make some checkoff boxes, help them 
to help you. Okay. Give them that. It may seem really stupid, but clearly, I, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say, you know, there's a reason why franchises have a replicable model that makes millions or billions of dollars every year is because they have systems down that get consistent results. Now, another thing to remember is that when you have new staff members, oftentimes at our camp, we would have our staff members be kind of teamed up with one of the other instructors or an experienced returning counselor. This was good and bad at times because on one hand, they could show the new staff the ropes. Number one, I want to say, if you have a staff member that's doing that, make sure that you appreciate them for that extra work they're doing. Because sometimes even to teach somebody else something is more work than them just doing it themselves. So recognize that and say, hey, thank you for that. Do you need anything? Support them. Hey, throw them a bag of pistachios or something or whatever, whatever their preferred treat is. And just support them because they're doing a little extra and they're adding to the community and, and, and giving the benefit of that. Most of the time, they're really happy to do that. However, the one problem that can happen in this, uh, or I should say there's two problems. One is you don't want your program director, your, the person that's kind of in charge of that week's theme or experience, you really want that person's eyeballs and attention to be on the campers and the staff and what I call assembling the recipe of all the ingredients of what your program is all about to lead to the results of what we want at the end. And that person needs to keep their eyeball on that. If they get too involved in, you know, training Becky and Steve on how to do, you know, fire making, they suddenly are not really engaging with the campers or the, you know, the students. And if they're not engaging with those students, the students are kind of left, you know, flailing in the wind, which means that, you know, you need to have experienced staff taking care of those new folks and connecting with them. However, the other problem that can happen is that the new person can sometimes, like if there's someone where they might, you know, go rogue, as I, as I call it, you need to make sure that whoever those, those mentors, their mentor, their guide, you know, the person kind of putting them under their wing, make sure that they are people who can actually say no to that other person, that they can say, hey, let's not do that. Or if they can't say no, make sure that they are comfortable coming and telling you, hey, I think I'm having a little rogue situation going on. I just want you to know so that you can be on, on top of this and we can kind of nip this in the bud before it becomes a problem. Problem is that many times those younger staff members are not able to do that because they feel they identify with staff and not necessarily with the directors. And so in their mind, they're like, if I say anything about, you know, Becky, you know, not wanting to do cordage with the kids tomorrow or something, it feels like they're betraying Becky. And, you know, after two weeks, they're friends with her. her. They are, they don't want to, they don't want to hurt her feelings. They don't want her to think, oh, if I tattle on them, then now I'm ratting them out and now it will destroy whatever credibility or trust that I've built up with them. So therefore, I'm just going to be quiet and hope it all works out. And honestly, 
<laughs> it doesn't usually work out. And when it doesn't work out, then it's a problem. And then you as a director can feel like I'm betrayed because I thought, you know, John, the person that was mentoring Becky was my friend. I thought John was someone who was going to come to me and tell me when something was happening. You know, you thought John was going to do his mentoring and then kind of side with you in terms of that you and John are a team trying to train this person. And all of a sudden it just gets really, gets really weird and murky. I'm just kind of trying to throw out there that that many times younger staff members are not able to adequately supervise their peers. They're, it's a big, big leap to go from being a counselor, being able to get children to take showers or play games or learn wilderness skills or, you know, eat s'mores or whatever around the campfire and supervising that to supervising their peers. That's a very big leap. And it's, and it's fraught with a lot of emotional uh, stuff that in the moment they will say, oh no, I'm fine. And then it turns out they're not fine. You want to make sure that you're the one checking in and really holding that person and tracking and letting them know that you're on top of supervising them. And when they have a question about, oh, do you think it would be okay if we did this and this, make sure that you're the one saying, hey, you can come and ask me and I'll give you the answer. Don't You don't necessarily want to ask this other fellow counselor because if you ask them, they might say, oh, I don't know, but I guess it's okay, as opposed to them coming to you and going, yeah, no, we can't do that. Sorry. You're the director. You're, you have to be comfortable being able to say no to people. And, you know, it's like when a parent comes and they go, hey, can we bring the family dog? And then you're like, um, no, to the program, no whatever. Just be aware, like these relationships and these, you know, dynamics and the communication styles and awareness of the, it's complicated, it's nuanced, and ultimately it will be your deal. It will be your responsibility. If Becky goes off and takes the kids midnight gravel hunt, capture the flag game, and somebody gets hurt, you will be the one having to explain to the parents why Becky was allowed to do something that was not in your camp description. Hopefully everything's okay and it works out. But the reality is you're, it's your you know butt on the line and it's your program and everything you've worked for for years and years. So you have to be able to say no to a 19-year-old when they want to do something that is not something that will work with your program model. It's good to be open to ideas as well. Like when you do bring a, a group of new people into your program and they are experienced and they have good things to share, give them some rope and make sure you can give them, you know, if, if you don't give them a lot of wiggle room to innovate and offer what their specialty is in a, in a you know, really nice way, then it will come out sideways like Becky and the midnight thing. But you know, you want to make sure that Becky has an avenue of things that she's interested in offering. Where is the right space for her to offer those things so that she doesn't try to do it at midnight or whenever, if you know what I mean? Like people really want to prove themselves and also share and feel valued. So give them time to do that. Try to give a little room in your program for innovation, right? It's sort of like, you know, having a cookie recipe. If you have that chocolate chip cookie recipe and you go, well, should we try coconut? Well, I wouldn't necessarily make the entire batch that way, but if you wanted to take 10% of the, you know, recipe and mix in a little, a couple tablespoons of that and try that, it might be good. I don't know. I don't know. We've got something and it might be good. 
but it's not chocolate chip cookies, which is what we said we were making. So think about that. Make sure that you give them some room and be open-minded and try stuff. That's okay too. And the last thing I'm going to end with here is just to say that, you know, when you hire and bring staff in and then you really work with them and get to know them and you build and create really awesome programs together, they really do become like family. Um, So remember that they are going to evolve over time as they get older, as they get more experience, as they mature, especially the younger you start. And, you know, there there was plenty of staff that I had or CITs that I had that I was like, oh my gosh, I will never hire that person. And then, you know, six months went by and I talked to them and they were like, hey, you know, I want to come back. And then I'd say, hey, we had these problems here and here. And they're like, oh, you know what? I totally, when I look back on it, I know that wasn't really the right thing to do. And I've brought people back, gave them that second chance, and they were awesome. So remember that they, just like your family, they deserve different chances sometimes. Within reason, obviously, if they do something crazy, you can always choose to go, hey, I'm going to go a different way, but good luck to you. But for the most part, they're still going to be your family in a way where they're part of your program's family. They're part of their the camper's lineage or whatever of people they've learned from. And it's it's really good to keep that in mind. Hey, I hope that some of these tips and ideas and suggestions or stories I've shared have been helpful. Please let me know if I should add something that you have. Send me a note. Love to hear it. And hey, good luck and have an awesome summer. All right. See you around the campfire. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.